Well, the news this last week was dominated, wasn't it, by the death of um, Margaret Thatcher, arguably uh, Britain's greatest uh, post-war Prime Minister. I'm sure you'll all have your views on uh, just how good a Prime Minister you think she may, you might have been. But I think whatever your views may be, I think most people agree that when she took office in uh, 1979, there were a lot of things about the country, a lot of things about the economy that weren't working and that needed changing. And certainly as I, as a young graduate starting work uh, in the city in the second half of the 80s, I was already able to see uh, the benefit of some of those changes. There was a new spirit of optimism which some of those changes have brought about. But when we talk of change, I think it um, provokes different reactions, doesn't it, in different people. I think for some people, um, it will be worry and anxiety. They like stability, they like certainty, and um, uncertainty about the future is difficult to, to cope with. For others, it will be a sense of excitement. They see the, the potential of what might be, of things that don't work being corrected. And for others, well, it may be ambivalence, not particularly bothered um, one way or the other. The reason why governments and uh, businesses, why schools, why churches, for that matter, seek change is that they see things that could work better. And it's interesting that when we think of change, that we worship a God who doesn't change. Why is that? Because he doesn't need to change, does he? He is a, a perfect God. He's all-knowing. He is all-loving. He's all-wise. And the fact that he doesn't change means the things he says, the promises he makes, we can trust him. He's completely reliable. Whereas we, on the other hand, as human beings, are clearly not perfect. And there's much in us that needs to change. Now, we may think um, the church building project is a huge change in the life of our church. In many ways it is. But actually compared to the, the change that needs to take place in each one of us, it is actually fairly insignificant. Tim Chester says in his book, You Can Change, on which the sermon series uh, is based, and I recommend if you would like to get hold of the book to do so. He says, God has a big agenda for change in our lives. It's a change that is much harder than changing a building. Because when you change a building, that's done. The change in our lives is an ongoing process that never stops until our lives come to an end. And the question that we're going to be looking at this morning as we start this series is, what is it that we would like to change in our lives? But more importantly, if, if you ask that, what is it that we think God would like to change in our lives? Now for that, we're going to turn to this passage that Isabel read for us uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And have a look there at verse 18. Because there it says, And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect or contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed, are being changed into his likeness, into his image. God is changing us, he's recreating us in his image. Now you may say, why does God need to recreate us in his image? After all, we know from Genesis, it says there that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are already 
God's image on earth. We are displaying his likeness. But we are not God, are we? So there are some attributes that we will never share with God. The fact that he is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, that he's present everywhere. But there are some that we do share. To be made in God's image is to be made as beings capable of meaningful relationships, of loving relationships, as beings with a sense of morality, with a sense of right and wrong, as beings who are able to create things, who are creative, as beings with a responsibility to rule over the rest of creation, responsibility that God has given us. And because of those unique characteristics, we are unlike any other creature that God has made. After he made the world, after he made the animals, he said, look to them and it says, he said they were good. After he made mankind, God looked at humans and said he was, they were very God. He was very pleased with what he'd made. Because people reflected God's glory in the world. Of course, the problem is that that image of God has become distorted when humanity rejected God. Adam and Eve were the first representatives of God on earth. And they chose to reject God. They chose to promote their own glory rather than God's glory. And so ever since mankind has inherited a broken image of God, we no longer reflect God's image as we should do. Romans, it says this, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God, the image of God, go together. Being made in the image of God humans were meant to reflect the glory of God, the greatness of God. But because that image is, is broken, we fail to reflect his glory. Instead of being a high-definition TV that provide images of people as if they were right there with you in your room, we're like a TV that some of you may remember from the, the 50s that gives a blurred, fuzzy, black-and-white image that is hard to make out. But the good news is that God has done something about that. He sent his son. He sent Jesus Christ into the world. And why did he send Jesus? Who was this Jesus that he sent into the world? What was, the, what was so special about him? Look down at chapter 4, verse uh, 4. Look what it says there. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God, but not just any image. Hebrews 1, 3 tells us this, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So like people who are a poor reflection of God, Jesus is the perfect image of God. And Jesus makes God known to the world. He reflects God's glory. And Jesus came to recreate us in God's image. By taking a penalty for our sin, Jesus restored the image of God in us so that God now looks at us and he sees Jesus. Now you may ask, well how does that happen though? Because surely there will be some who continue to re reject Jesus. So how can they be recreated in the image of God? How are some recreated 
and made new. Well, the answer is there in verse 16. Have a look down at verse 16. Look what it says there. It says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The veil is taken away. Now, as this passage is read to us, you would have read these, these, images, these references to the veil, to Moses, to the Israelites, and you may have been thinking, what is, what is that all about? What's, what's this veil that is being talked about here? Well, it goes back to um, a story from Exodus 34, where we are told how Moses spoke to the Lord, and after he did so, his face became radiant. It reflected the glory of the Lord. And when he spoke with the people, he allowed them to see that glory. But when he finished speaking, he put a veil over his face so that no one would see that glory fade. It was a, a temporary glory. And in the passage here in Corinthians, Paul is using that image of the veil to describe how the glory that the people of Israel saw under that old covenant was a temporary glory, it was a fading glory. And he's saying that old covenant is like having a veil that prevents them from seeing the, the full, the permanent, the eternal glory that comes in Jesus Christ. Verse 15, look at verse 15, it says there, even to this day, when Moses is read, that is, uh, the books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament, when they are read, a veil covers their hearts. It stops them seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul here is speaking from his own experience. He was a Jew who would have regularly attended the synagogue. He would have listened to the Old Testament being read out. And he didn't see the glory of God until that veil was removed and he saw the face of Christ. This veil image will be like, imagine being married for a, for a man here, being married to a Muslim woman with a veil. You see something of that, that beauty, but she never removes the veil, and you never see the full glory, the full beauty of that woman. And that same spiritual blindness exists today. Paul wrote here, in uh, chapter 4, in verse 4 again, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's veiled them so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So how do we see it? If the glory of Christ is hidden, if it is veiled, how then do we see it? Well, again, it's in verse 16. Can look back at verse 16. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. To turn to the Lord is an expression that refers really to the process of becoming a Christian. It's acknowledging our need, returning to God. It's like repentance, it means turning away from following life. Our way is turning to God, following life his way. And if we do that, as we do that, as we seek God, he makes himself known to us. He removes that veil so that we can see him, so that we see our need for forgiveness, and he grants that to us. We see him in his glory. And many of you here will have done that, some very recently, some many years ago. Others may still be hiding behind that veil that, that covers their hearts, not maybe wanting anybody to know what is in your heart, what your innermost desires and dreams are. But God, of course, God can see into your heart anyway. So you can't hide it from from him. The question is, do you want him 
to change your heart? Do you want to see God? Do you want to be recreated in the image of God? Well, if we read on, the passage makes clear that having the veil taken away is not the end. Let's go back to verse 18 there again. Because there it says, And we, who with unveiled faces, these are people who have had the veil taken away, all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image, his likeness, with ever-increasing glory. To have the veil taken away marks the start of a relationship with God, but it is not the end. God wants us to be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And what that means is to become more like Jesus. I read out uh, last week a passage from uh, John Stott's book, The Radical Disciple, um, the last book that he wrote while he was on this earth. And he wrote these words, he said, I want to share with you where my mind has come to rest as I approach the end of my pilgrimage on earth. And it is this. God wants his people to become like Christ. For Christ-likeness is the will of God for the people of God. God wants us to become more like Christ. So if God wants us to become more like Christ, well, what are the aspects of Christ's character then that we, we can imitate? Well, I just want to give you um, a few um, key ones this morning. And the first of those is humility. I think the worst characteristic of sin is pride. It is pride that says, I don't need Jesus. It is pride that says, I don't need help. It is pride that says, I don't need to be corrected. I don't need to be rebuked. It is pride that looks at the faults of others and makes you feel comfortable yourself because you're not as bad as somebody else. And if pride is a sin, then the counter to that, the counter virtue, is humility. And Jesus demonstrated great humility, didn't he? And nowhere is that um, expressed more clearly than in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Have a look um, at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And Paul writes this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Great humility of Christ. And linked with that humility is, is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Jesus demonstrated his love for humankind in all sorts of ways during his time on earth. He healed the sick. He befriended the, the outcasts. He wept with those who wept. He taught the disciples by example. Remember the last night how he took a towel and basin of water and he washed the feet of the disciples and he said to them now that I your Lord and teacher have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet 
I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. But sacrificial love is not um, just helping others out when we've got the time or the inclination, when it doesn't inconvenience us. It's giving up time. It's giving up our convenience and comfort to help others. Apparently when Ross crashed his bike um, this week, there was a bit of a good Samaritan moment there, I'm told. Unfortunately, nobody went by on the other side of the road, but um, uh, one cyclist did stop and check to see if he was okay. Um, and I think Ross is probably in a state of days and said, yeah, I'm fine, as blokes often do. Um, and so he rode off. Fortunately, there was another couple there who did stop and actually checked whether he really was okay and realised, actually, no, uh, something serious was here, was up here. And uh, they called the ambulance. They um, made sure he was okay. They found out where Rob and Jackie were staying. They went to, to tell them what had happened and they gave him Ross's crumpled bike back as well. The biggest sacrifice of Jesus required a lot of inconvenience, it required a lot of pain, quite a lot of suffering. It, it, it was, of course, giving up his life on the cross for us. And Jesus said, greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Which leads us on to the next characteristic, which is patient endurance. Peter, one of the apostles, before he was himself martyred for his faith, he urged Christians to bear unjust punishment. He urged them not to repay evil with evil. He said this, he said, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. If we avoid that suffering, if we avoid the tough times, if we seek comfort and ease, if we blame God when everything goes wrong, then we won't become like Jesus. There's a verse that Christians love to quote from, from Romans when times are tough. And it's this from Romans 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. But often I think people misunderstand what that good is. Because the verse actually carries on. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness, the image of his Son. If the greatest good that we can experience is to be conformed to the image of Christ, then hopefully that will help us if, if we or somebody dear to us is going through a time of suffering. And there are many in our church, in our church family, who are going through that time at the moment. We watched a DVD the other night, um, I don't know whether any of you have seen it, called Soul Surfer, which tells the story of uh, an American teenage girl um, living in Hawaii who was a bit of an expert surfer. And uh, one day she... Um, is attacked by a shark and has her arm bitten off. Uh, she nearly dies. Uh, she has great courage, great strength, but she struggles to make sense of why God would allow this to happen to her. She is a Christian, but tries to understand what it is all about. And eventually, as the film goes on, she comes to the acknowledgement that her disability is actually a gift from God. 
and that actually there's far more people she's been able to reach out to with love, with one arm, she said, than had she still had to come on the church weekend to have a chance to, to watch the, the film then. We'll come on to, I, I was going to talk about mission, but I think we'll come on to that um, another time during this, this series. There's plenty of opportunity for that. Some of the things we've looked at are humility, sacrificial love, patience, endurance. If we read the Bible, we'll find much more that we can imitate in the life of Christ. And Tim Chester sums it up well in his book. He says this, The earthly life of Jesus reflects the glory of God in the goodness of his actions, and the beauty of his attitudes, and the purity of his thoughts. Jesus reflected the glory of God And God's agenda for change is for us to become like Jesus. Now the trouble is sometimes we may look at ourselves and actually we realise we are a long way from displaying God's glory. We are a long way from becoming like Christ. We admit we're proud. We love when we can, when it's convenient. We moan when things go wrong. We're too lazy to get involved in other people's lives and share the gospel with them. And it could make us quite depressed at the scale of the change that needs to take place in us before we become anything like Jesus. But the good news is that this is not some sort of um, self-help class here. This is not ten steps to becoming like Christ. This passage here tells us the process of change is a work of the Spirit. Have a look again in the back of 2 Corinthians 3.16. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, a veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's God who has opened our eyes in the first place to see our need for forgiveness, to see our need for salvation. And it is he who, through the power of the Spirit working in us, will make us more like Christ. And how does the Spirit work in us to do that, though? It's by enabling us to see Jesus, to contemplate Jesus, to look at him and gaze upon him. Do you remember the centurion at the cross? We heard about him recently, didn't we, at Easter time. He looked at Christ on the cross and said, surely this man was the Son of God. I don't know about you, but if I was asked to draw or describe something I had seen once, I would fail pretty miserably. If it was something I'd seen a few times, I... um, probably still fail miserably. If I sat in front of that object or that scene, I'd probably still fail miserably, but I would do um, a bit of a better job anyway. And it's like that with Jesus, isn't it? If we've read the Bible once, our image of Jesus will be blurred. We'll find it hard to imitate him. The more time we spend reading his word, knowing him more deeply, the better we will imitate him, the greater the image of him will be seen in us. 
the more we will show his glory. I don't know how often you, you read your Bible. I don't say that to, to make you feel guilty. But to get you to question how much you want to become like Jesus. Do you want to be changed? Not just a one-off change, but with ever-increasing glory. There are plenty of resources to be able to do that, and if you want some suggestions, come and have a word with uh, Jeff or me afterwards. If you want to follow this theme of change, I've actually put some verses in the notice sheet um, for you to read on your own. You can read them every day, some verses you could read there. Sunday evening learning streams are a great opportunity to, to know Jesus more. Sign up for one of the groups if you haven't already. God wants us to become more like Christ, to be transformed into ever-increasing glory. At the end of our service, we're going to sing that great hymn by Charles Wesley, Love Divine, or Love Excelling. And the final verse goes like this. Change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we lay our crowns before you, lost in wonder, love and praise. Change from glory into glory. If we are Christians already, God has enabled us to see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. But there is an ultimate glory into which we are being changed. And that is the glory of the Lord that we will only behold on the last day when we see him face to face when our transformation will become complete and we will fully reflect the image of God. I'm going to leave you with some words from 1 John 3, which sum that up. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure.